0: Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello and welcome back. We will start with our trivia question from last week. Did Nephi have any sisters? Okay, we got a response from Andy in San Antonio. Long story short, the answer is yes. They're only mentioned one time in 2 Nephi chapter 5, verse 6, when Nephi's group is separating from Laman's group. Quote, Wherefore it came to pass that I, Nephi, did take my family and also Zoram and his family, and Sam, my elder brother, and his family, and Jacob and Joseph, my younger brethren, and also my sisters, and all those who would go with me. Notice that it doesn't say my sisters and their families. It seems unlikely his sisters would leave their families to follow Nephi. So perhaps, or maybe even probably, they were too young to be married. They were not mentioned as family members in the heading of chapter one and he mentions them here immediately after his youngest two brothers who were born in the wilderness. So perhaps they were born in the wilderness as well. There's no way to know, but you know, that kind of makes sense. Today we're covering chapters 8 and 9. We'll start with verse 1, and it came to pass that we had gathered together all manner of seeds of every kind, both grain of every kind and also of seeds of fruit of every kind. In the last episode, I asked whether they gathered these seeds and grains by foraging in the Valley of Lemuel, or whether they bought them from someone. Verse 1 implies a third possibility, that the seeds and grains had already been gathered. As it says, we had gathered all manner of seeds. Now, this has no doctrinal importance whatsoever, but I'm still curious whether Lehi's group interacted with any other people after leaving Jerusalem. Since Nephi mentions no groups in his account other than robbers who they sought to avoid, I imagine them leaving Jerusalem and never seeing another living soul other than those in their group. But perhaps that was not the case. All right, continuing with with chapter 8. And it came to pass that while my father tarried in the wilderness, he spake unto us, the phrase that catches my attention here is, while my father tarried in the wilderness. In First Nephi 2.15, Nephi said in the ever-famous extra-short verse, and my father dwelt in a tent. My father dwelt in a tent. We know that Lehi's sons made at least two trips back to Jerusalem. Was Lehi possibly the only one who permanently stayed in the Valley of Lemuel? Did the others come and go? The language implies this was possible, but given the distance from Jerusalem, three days, it seems unlikely. But while Lehi tarried in the wilderness, he had another dream. And when his family was together, he told them about it. He said, Because of the thing which I have seen, I have reason to rejoice in the Lord because of Nephi and also of Sam. For I have reason to suppose that they and also many of their seed will be saved. But behold, Laman and Lemuel, I fear exceedingly because of you. And then Lehi described his vision. It began in a dark and dreary wilderness. A man in a white robe appeared and asked Lehi to follow him. After traveling in darkness for several hours, and let me just interrupt to say that walking in the dark for several hours would be a really miserable dream. But after wandering in the dark for several hours, he prayed that the Lord would have mercy on him And this is where the dream, as we think of it, begins. I have wondered why God sometimes chooses to teach people through dreams. I don't personally have much experience with revelatory dreams. That's not how God speaks to me. Years ago when I was a missionary, Elder Richard G. Scott visited our mission. One of the things he discussed with us was how to distinguish between a dream and a vision. I don't have a quote, so I'm paraphrasing, but he. Essentially, he said, with a dream, there's a distinct feeling of waking up at the end, whereas with a vision, there is no abrupt transition. It fades out, you find yourself lying there. That, That seems to be what Joseph Smith experienced at the end of the first vision. In Joseph Smith, History 1, verse 20, Joseph says, When I came to myself, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. In the church's April 2012 General Conference, Elder Richard G. Scott gave some practical advice about learning through dreams. He said, Revelation can also be given in a dream where there is an almost imperceptible transition from sleep to wakefulness. If you strive to capture the content immediately, you can record great detail, but otherwise it fades quickly. He then continued, Inspired communication in the night is generally accompanied by a sacred feeling for the entire experience. The Lord uses individuals for whom we have great respect to teach us truths in a dream because we trust them and will listen to their counsel. It is the Lord doing the teaching through the Holy Ghost. However, He may, in a dream, make it both easier to understand and more likely to touch our hearts by teaching us through someone who we love and respect. Lehi did not talk about having a spiritual guide or teacher in his dream, as Elder Scott described, but, but Nephi did, and we'll read about his dream in chapters 11-14, through 14, coming soon. So, I, I've wondered if perhaps God uses dreams because they allow you to be immersed in a, in a symbolic world where you can experience things, rather than simply being given information or instruction. Symbols allow complex topics to be boiled down to their essence, and this might explain why Lehi gave details of what he saw in his dreams rather than sharing what he learned from his dream. By doing this, he allows a a listener or a reader, to a lesser extent, to experience the same symbolism that he experienced while having the dream. So let's move into his dream. Lehi saw a large and spacious field, and a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. Verse 11, And it came to pass that I did go forth and partake of the fruit thereof, and I beheld that it was most sweet above all that I ever before tasted. Yea, and I beheld that the fruit thereof was white to exceed all the whiteness I had ever seen. Lehi's soul filled with joy, and he wanted his family to experience it because, as he said, quote, I knew that it was desirable above all other fruit. He looked around, trying to find his family, and as he did, the the vision gradually unfolded, and he became more and more aware of his surroundings. He saw a river running by the tree where he stood. At the head of this river, he saw Sariah, Sam, and Nephi, confused about where to go. He signaled for them to join him, and they came and joined him in eating the fruit. Lehi also saw Laman and Lemuel and wanted them to try the fruit as well. He saw them at the head of the river and tried to summon them, but they would not come. Let's look at the wording of verse 13. And as I cast my eyes round about, that perhaps I might discover my family also, I beheld a river of water, and it ran along, and it was near the tree of which I was partaking the fruit. Lehi said he beheld a river of water, in English, a river of water is redundant. And that sort of phrasing got Joseph Smith laughed at. But it's not redundant in Arabic. In, in Arabic, the word nar, and by the way, my my pronunciation, I guarantee you, is, is off or dead wrong. But the word nar means river. But the phrase nar ma means river of water. So I did a Google search for nar ma and found that a lot of rivers include that in their name. Nar ma, raba." Nar Ran, Nar Ma'araj, and others. But as you can see, I clearly don't speak Arabic. And all for that matter, neither did Joseph Smith. So this is just one of many Arabic phrases or idioms in the Book of Mormon that would have been as unfamiliar to Joseph as they would have been to you or me. Hopefully, someone who speaks Arabic can correct my pronunciation and confirm or refute this observation if so, please leave me a comment or shoot me an email. But let's get back to, to Lehi. As the vision progressed, Lehi became aware of an iron rod that ran alongside the riverbank and ended the tree where he stood. A straight and narrow path lay beneath the iron rod. Far off, Lehi saw countless people in a large, spacious field, quote, as if it had been a world, end quote. They pressed forward, attempting to follow the path toward the distant tree but as they progressed, a great mist of darkness arose, which prevented them from seeing their destination. Some of those seeking the tree became confused by the mists and wandered away and were lost. Others clung to the rod until they reached the tree and partook of the fruit, but after eating the fruit, they cast their eyes about as if they were ashamed. What would make them ashamed of eating the fruit? Well... Lehi next became aware of a large building filled with well-dressed people opposite the river from the tree. It stood in the air. It had no foundation. High above the ground and the building's numerous inhabitants mocked and laughed at those eating the fruit. Many travelers diverted from the path, hoping to enter the building rather than continuing to the tree. Some succeeded and joined those taunting the people by the tree. Others fell into the fountain and drowned. Still others wandered down strange roads and were lost. Lehi observed others who held steadfastly to the rod until they reached the tree. These people ate the fruit and ignored the taunting crowds. Lehi, in my opinion, made a significant observation. He observed that those who did not or could not ignore the jeers of the crowd did not remain by the tree. Verse 34, these are the words of my father, for as many as heeded them had fallen away. Okay, what does this all mean? Although Lehi's dream is only about 30 verses long, you could write a whole book discussing what it means, and in fact, a few people have written entire books about it. Here we're going to just scratch the surface. So the meaning of the dream becomes more clear when we understand what the tree represents. In Alma 32, Alma will describe to his audience the importance of growing and developing faith and nurturing a testimony. He compares it to caring for a tree. Now let's compare the tree from Lehi's vision to the tree in Alma's sermon. From in 1 Nephi chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, this is how Lehi describes the fruit from the tree. It was most sweet above all that I had ever before tasted. Yea, and I beheld that the fruit thereof was white, to exceed all the whiteness that I had ever seen. And as I partook of the fruit thereof, it filled my soul with exceedingly great joy. Okay, so now let's go to Alma 32, verse 42. Here's how Alma describes the tree in his analogy. Verse 42. Behold, by and by ye shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, which is white above all that is white, and pure above all that is pure. And ye shall feast upon this fruit, even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst. It's very similar to the fruit in Lehi's dream. So what is this fruit? Let's turn to 1 Nephi 11, in which Nephi is having his own vision. and During this vision, Nephi discusses the meaning of some of the symbols in Lehi's vision with an angel. In verse 21, the angel asked, Knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father saw? And I answered him, saying, Yea, it is the love of God which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men, wherefore it is the most desirable above all things. And he spake unto me, saying, Yea, and the most joys to the soul. So the tree symbolizes the love of God. In Lehi's dream, a path led to this tree. There were numberless concourses of people, many of whom were pressing forward, that they might obtain the path which led to the tree by which I stood. There were many, although not all, who wanted to find the path leading to the love of God. But the path was obscured by great mists of darkness, which 1 Nephi 12.7 tells us represent the temptations of the devil. This scenario seems an awful lot like what Doctrine and Covenants 123 verse 12 describes. Verse 12 says, For there are many yet on the earth among all sects, parties, and denominations who are blinded by the subtle craftiness of men, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, and who are only kept from the truth because they know not where to find it. Of those who found the path, there were three groups. First, though, we learned from Nephi's vision that the iron rod symbolizes the word of God. So the the word of God is leading back to the tree of life, which symbolizes the love of God. Elder Bednar analyzed the three groups following the iron rod in his October 2011 talk called Lehi's Dream. The first group started on the path. They lost their way because of the mists or temptations and were lost. The second group clung to the rod. Elder Bednar said, Clinging to the rod suggests to me only occasional bursts of study or irregular dipping rather than constant ongoing immersion in the Word of God. When these people were confronted with persecution and adversity, said Elder Bednar, they fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. I'll quote Elder Bednar directly about the third group. He says, in verse 30, we read about a third group of people who pressed forward continually holding fast to the rod of iron until they came forth and fell down and partook of the fruit of the tree. The key phrase in this verse is continually holding fast to the rod of iron. The third group also pressed forward with faith and conviction. However, there is no indication that they wandered off, fell into forbidden paths, or were lost. Perhaps this third group of people consistently read and studied and searched the scriptures, Perhaps it was diligence and devotion to seemingly small and simple things. For me, what surprised me most in reading about the tree of life and the iron rod and the fruit is that although the fruit was sweet above all it was sweet and brought joy to the soul, a lot of people simply did not want it. Perhaps they enjoyed the fruit, but it wasn't worth being laughed at by well-dressed people in the great and spacious building. The fruit might have been sweet, but it simply wasn't a priority to some people. Also, tasting a fruit is a subjective thing. You can't transfer it to someone else. They have to try it for themselves. That means if people are laughing at you, there really is no comeback or argument that you can make that will allow them to experience it. You're defenseless. There's nothing you can say to change their mind. In a best-case scenario, you might be able to persuade them to... Come and try the fruit. Bottom line, you have to decide. Do you like the fruit or don't you? Is the fruit good or isn't it? If you like it and you want to always have it, the only option is to ignore the people who are mocking you. Arguing is pointless. Repeating verse 34. These are the words of my Father. For as many as heeded them had fallen away. Now, if you'll indulge me for just a minute. The reason I stay by the tree is because I enjoy the fruit. The the nature of our mortal test is that, um, and, and this is particularly frustrating for an engineer, is that you can't prove anything. That's not the nature of the gospel. It's not the sort of thing you can prove. However, if you like the fruit, there's nowhere else to get it. And me, personally, that's why I try to stay by the tree. Returning to Lehi and his family. And Laman and Lemuel partook not of the fruit, said my father. And, he said unto us, because of the, these things which he saw in a vision, he exceedingly feared for Laman and Lemuel. He feared lest they should be cast off from the presence of the Lord. Although Laman and Lemuel spent as much time in the desert as Nephi did, even though they got hungry as often as he did, even though in coming chapters they helped build a boat, just like he did. In short, even though they and their families went through trials, they never let themselves taste the fruit. Finding their way to the tree wasn't an issue. Their father stood by the tree and beckoned to them. They knew exactly where the tree was. They just decided it wasn't for them. And that takes us to the end of chapter 8. Chapter 9 is tiny. Only six verses long. Uh, When I was a teen and tried to read at least one chapter a day. This was one of my go-to chapters when I was really tired. So in chapter 9, Nephi paused in his narrative to talk about the plates themselves. He explained that he made, quote, these plates, or the plates that we're reading, to keep a record of the ministry of his people. He also created another set of plates for recording the reigns of kings and wars and contentions and so on. Nephi did not know why he was told to keep two sets of plates. He simply said it was, quote, For a wise purpose in him which I know not. In verse 6, we hear an echo of 1 Nephi 3, seven verse 6. But the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning, wherefore he prepareth a way to accomplish all his works among the children of men. For behold, he hath all power under the fulfilling of all his words. And thus it is. Amen. That's all I have for today. Now, before we wrap up, here is today's trivia question. Email your answer to BOMjourney at gmail.com. That's B-O-M, the word journey with no spaces or anything, at gmail.com. So let me know your answer, cite your source, or explain how you know it. How many times are camels mentioned in the Book of Mormon? Until next time.